0: As you might gather, we're not in Philippians anymore. We uh, have come to an end of that study. I'm so happy to uh, go uh, from there and continue on throughout the rest of the scripture. I've been praying where God would lead and direct uh, on these Sunday nights. So we're going to bounce around to a couple of Psalms here and there. I'm actually looking forward to March as uh, there's lots of... Uh, guest speakers coming in with the uh, missionary conference at the end of the month. I'm really excited to uh, host that. <laughs> it's I've been telling folks that it's it's interesting. Uh, I've planned three of these, and this is the only one I'll be able to have taken part of so far, because uh, we had to cancel the other ones. So uh, I'm glad, though, that this is looking, knock on what I guess, but <laughs> the Lord can will, but it's looking like we'll be able to pull it off, uh, thankfully. And uh, I'm really excited for the speakers we have lined up for that week. And we have a couple others that are coming in too, so uh, throughout March, so I'm excited for that, Uh, but we're in Psalm 99 tonight, Psalm 99, and we're just going to kind of look at the whole psalm, just kind of see some things that we can note throughout it. Um, As you might well imagine, this psalm has a very clear theme, a very clear sort of point that it tries to convey, uh, just in noting verses 3 and 5 and verse 9. As the psalmist here reiterates just that what we have just been singing, the holy, holy, holy God that we have. You'll note in verse 3, Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. Verse 5, Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. And then the last verse, as it expresses, Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. I think this psalm is very significant for us and indicative of I think what ought to be said of the worship that fills our churches which is to say that our worship ought to be done in holiness as we recognize that that's what we are coming into church all, all in our mindsets and in our minds and hearts worshiping we are worshiping a God that is holy who is holy And as Pastor Nathan rightly said, he is thrice holy. It's the only uh, sort of descriptor of the Lord that we have that is repeated three times in chorus. A holy, holy, holy God is the one that we have. And as we sung, the holy, holy God, Lord Almighty. It's a remarkable hymn. And it drives us to just see just how expansive, how massive this God is. That's what it is driving us. But it's not just... A hymn with beautiful words, it's a hymn that drives us to see this one as, it, as we have, you can go to those particular scriptures, it's, it's derived right out of that. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 is where that hymn basically comes from, and I'll, I'll try and read it real quick. Isaiah 6 verse 3, uh, if I can turn there, has records for us this little chorus that we have for us in glory. Isaiah 6.3 says, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And that same refrain is repeated all the way in Revelation chapter 4 verse 8. Just to say that this is who our God is. And I would say likewise that this holiness of God is a point we would do well, I think, to consider more. You know, have to fill our minds, to fill our hearts and souls and our, and our thinking, the way that we approach the scriptures is to approach them as the revelation of a holy God and how he saves unholy people. I would say in general, our concepts of God's holiness are a little bit deficient. Perhaps that's even too weak. They're really deficient. <laughs> As here this psalmist is trying to get us to see, this holiness causes the people to tremble, to quake in their boots. It's it's something that ought to shake us to the core. Because we know this is probably going to be one of the most basic things that we can ever say in church. (laughs) You and I are not holy, we know that. (laughs) We perhaps recognize evidences of that all the time, that uh, we are unholy people. But God, we could say, is holiness. It's not just something that he has, so much as it is who he is. It's part of his nature. It's part of his being. He is holiness. That is part of who he is as our God. Uh, Turn to a verse really quick in the book of Leviticus, if you will. The book of Leviticus chapter 11, as here, as God is describing himself to his people, he kind of lets that cat out of the bag, so to speak. Leviticus chapter 11, look at verses 44 and 45. As God describes himself, Yahweh, the Lord Jehovah, describes himself as one who is holy. Notice, Leviticus 11, verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, for I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. As you... Perhaps, well, no, almost all of the the laws and the rituals and the ordinances that were prescribed to the people of Israel was just to get them to see just that. The awesome holiness of God. That's why every single detail was laid out for them in very minute ways. The the instruction on how to sow the, 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 the huge barrier that went around the tabernacle. All of the intricacies that that went into how to carve different pieces of furniture that were in that holy place was precisely for that reason to convey this is how awesome and holiness your God is. Which I think sometimes we lose coming to church sometimes that we come to church we're worshiping a holy God who is separate from unholiness, who has nothing to do with it. He, As it says, I think it's in the book of Habakkuk or Haggai, he can't even look at it. And yet we know that he has come to take on unholiness for us. How do we we juxtapose those things? Well, I think this psalm helps us. It helps us worship this holy God. And I think there's three things here that inform us and inspire our worship of God and his holiness. So we're going to look at them really quickly tonight. Three quick lessons about this holiness of God, our great and terrible God. The first lesson comes in verses 1 through 3, which is just holiness is where he is. Holiness is where he is. Notice how the psalmist begins by declaring precisely this reign of the Lord. Notice, the Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. From where God sits, from where God rules, he rules from a place of absolute holiness, which causes, as it says there, trembling and shaking of the people of the earth. And I think it's... Worth considering and worth pointing out that the opening declaration of this psalm asserts just that, that God reigns. He, he is opening out with the fundamental understanding that the Lord in heaven is king. It's not something that we are waiting for to happen. He's reigning right now. Just as this psalmist was opening up with this declaration of praise with the fact that he knows the Lord Jehovah reigns. We too right now sit in a place where we're not waiting for the Lord to take the throne. He already has it. He's already in rule. Yes, we are waiting for, we could say, the physical reign of the Lord Jesus on earth. When we know we can read the book of Revelation where it talks about he will come back on that horse, not as an infant babe, but as a mighty warrior. We're waiting for that day as the day we are eagerly anticipating But that doesn't negate the fact that even right now, even in this very hour, he is reigning. We can declare the same thing. The Lord reigneth. And he's sitting on that holy throne. Notice, the Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion and he is high above all the people. He's ruling from a place of holiness, from a place of dominion that is indicative of who he is. He's a God who is supremely holy and pure and righteous. Go over back a couple pages to Psalm 11, the 11th Psalm. And just, we're going to come to this in a a little bit as well, come back to it. But for the moment, just look at verse 4. Psalm 11, verse 4, notice... What David here exalts of the Lord. notice Psalm 11:4 says, "The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in His heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids try the children of men. He sits from that seat. As this holy judge, as he says, beholding and trying the children of men, sitting from that place of holiness, ruling and reigning from a seat of power, from a seat of sovereignty. And if you will, if you can't find it, I'll read it. But I had to mark it because I knew I'd have trouble finding it. But the book of Habakkuk. You know where the book of Habakkuk is? We should do a sword drill, maybe. Um, I had to mark it so I would be sure I could find it while I was preaching tonight. But Habakkuk chapter 2. Verse number 20 says nearly the same thing, Habakkuk 2.20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. And notice the reverence that we ought to have, let all the earth keep silence before him. That's the type of, we could say, shaking and trembling that is indicative back in our psalm, Psalm 99. It ought to make us in stunned silence how awesome in purity and might and holiness this God is. He is high above the people. And that's essentially what holiness means. As he says there, back in our text, Psalm 99, verse 3, Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. As you perhaps know, that's what that word means. Separate. Set apart. Set apart. This holiness of God is because his purity, his goodness, and his righteousness are all in their extremest, most perfect essences. And indeed, some have even said that that's what holiness is. It's the essence of all perfection. Separate from all faults, from all flaws, from all deficiencies, from any mark, from any blemish that might blight him. And in fact, I love what the book of Exodus describes this Lord, this Jehovah, as glorious in holiness. There's not enough adjectives. We could lose them to describe how holy our God is. All the things that we call... You know, we have that that sort of funny phrase. uh, A person who is deemed like a goody-two-shoes is called a holier-than-thou person. (laughs) And even they... Are woefully short of how holy our God is. Because all the things that we call good, that we call virtuous, are but shadows of God's perfect virtue. Charles Spurgeon says, commenting on this very psalm, that, quote, holiness is the harmony of all the virtues. The Lord has not one glorious attribute alone or in excess, but all glories are in him as a whole. He has all the virtues and he has them all in perfect measure, complete and supreme. And it is because of that that we can praise him for this holiness that he possesses. Notice again the psalmist, let them praise thy great and terrible name. For it is holy. I had to stop and ponder. Perhaps you're taken aback too by just that description of God's name as great and terrible. It's not often, I think, that those qualities are paired together of this God that we often associate with love and mercy and forgiveness. (laughs) But here, I think the psalmist is rightly wanting to get our minds back onto this one who is very much high and lifted up. This God who is high above the heavens, sitting from that holy throne. He is perfect in holiness. He's great and terrible, having nothing to do with those and those things that are unholy. Which, as he already has said in verse 1, it ought to make us quake in our boots. Because we know, perhaps you are aware of this all too well, that we cannot not be unholy. <laughs> it's part of who we are as sinners. It's part of who we are as creatures. <laughs> Save from God's holiness working in us through his spirit, by his grace, we cannot ever do anything holy. As the prophet Isaiah says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. Which is just to say that in praising this great and terrible and holy name of God, we are exalting the fact that he is ever high and above us. And I think what I'm trying to say is best captured, perhaps, by none other than C.S. Lewis. One of my favorite writers captures, I think, what I'm talking about in his beloved book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which... If you don't know, if you've never read, The Lion in the Wardrobe is a really fanciful tale which has some Christian allegory and meaning in it. Of course, Lewis was a Christian, a contemporary of Tolkien back in the day. And he wrote his book to sort of capture the story of Christianity with some fanciful creatures, which by that I mean there's talking beavers and talking fawns and all that kind of stuff, which is, if you're not into that, it's fine. You can still get the gist of this. (laughs) But essentially, there's four Uh, two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve, and they come into this magical world of Narnia, and they they find themselves in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're having this wonderful conversation with them. And the conversation turns to talking about this one Aslan, the lion, who roams the world, but he's been missing for a while. (laughs) And Aslan, as you might know, in this wonderful overarching story of Lewis's tales, he's essentially the Christ figure of all these stories. I love how they describe him in this scene. Susan, one of the daughters, she chimes in, Who is Aslan? And Mr. Beaver is quite surprised. He says, Aslan, why, you don't know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. He's the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? He is Aslan, the lion, the great lion. And anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And Lucy asked logically, then he isn't safe. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Which I just love that description. Of this fearsome, awesome king of the wood, Aslan. He's good, but not necessarily safe. He's a lion after all. But he is filled with goodness. And I think maybe I'm reading into the psalmist's words here, but that's what I get. That's the picture I get when he describes this holy God that we have as one who is great and terrible. He is a God who is in the highest degrees of holiness, of, 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 of all things perfect and just and good and terrible. And yet he is filled with greatness and goodness for people as puny as you and I. <laughs> he, is a, he is a God who is great and terrible, good but not safe. He is holy, I tell you. <laughs> Invoking the words of Mr. Beaver. Holiness is... Where he is, number two, our second lesson. Holiness is what he does. Holiness is where he is. Holiness is what he does. It's intrinsic to this God. It's inherent to his nature, yes. But it's also very suggestive of what he does in us and for us and through us. It describes his purposes that he designs to purpose in this world. Notice verse 4. The king's strength also loveth judgment. Thou dost establish equity. Thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool for he is holy. The God who... Is holiness is part of his being and his nature, it's part of who he is, loves, as he says, justice and judgment, all of his doings, all of his actions and words and thoughts, all of the things that he executes and performs are just that. They're just and right and perfect. And this is what he has endeavored and purpose to establish, as he says here: thou dost establish. Equity, thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. He is describing, the psalmist as he's encouraging all the people to, uh, to recognize that this is what God is doing in and through them. He is establishing a kingdom of justice full of people who have been made just. That's what is meant when we pray that beloved Lord's prayer, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. We're invoking this very thing, the very idea that He he is coming into this world and establishing a kingdom of justice and equity and righteousness and holiness, which likewise means all of those things that are opposite of that. They will be done away with, they will be crushed under this Lord of all things, this Lord who is great in Zion, this King of all the wood. He will destroy everything that is unholy. And in that place, he will establish this kingdom of absolute truth. Go back again to Psalm chapter 11. If you kept your finger there, you were smart, perhaps. (laughs) But just listen to this psalm. Notice how the psalmist again, a a psalm of David, describes just exactly what this holy Lord does. Notice verse 1, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in in heaven, his eyes behold, his eyelids try, the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup, for the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. This is what God does. This one who is holy, he performs, establishes, inaugurates holy in a place that is unholy. Spurgeon, again, commenting on this very same portion of the psalm, says, The Lord our God demolishes every system of injustice and right alone is made to stand. That's what this psalm is trying to get us to see. This is what we are praying for when we say Thy kingdom come. It's, yes, the demolition of unholiness and the establishment of holiness as the Lord intended, with every enemy made to be his footstool. It praises that fact that this is part of God's plan to execute justice in Jacob, which is just to say that he is producing that which he loves in the hearts and the lives of those he loves. He's a God, as it says there, who loves judgment. He loves holiness. It's who he is, and he is accomplishing holiness in those he loves. He's bringing about this very plan, this very design of bringing about holiness in a realm and in a world that is full of unholy people in his beautiful and marvelous way, which leads me to the last point. Holiness is where he is. Holiness is what he does. Holiness, thirdly, is how he acts. Holiness is how he acts by bringing about his holiness in those who are unholy. There's a quote that I love to go back to. It's from one of my favorite writers from the uh, 19th century. Of course, it's the Scottish churchman Horatius Bonner. And he says in his book, One of his books, the story of grace that he says to learn, quote, what unholiness or excuse me, let me start over (laughs) to learn what holiness is and how holy God is. We need not merely to see his feelings towards the holy, but towards the unholy. Which he goes on to describe how that's indicative of what God does with people who deserve something opposite, sort of what we were referring to this morning. And I think that quote offers a wealth of insight into the ways of God with this very world we have. This world, as we know, is full of wreckage and carnage and destruction and violence and hate. And if God is a God of holiness, it's where he is, it's who he is, it's what he does. If if we want to learn how that type of a holy God could have anything to do with a world like ours, we ought to notice how he deals with those very things. If holiness is who he is and where he is and what he aims to establish, how does he expect to accomplish that through people who are as unholy as you and I? <laughs> I think this last stanza gives us a clue. Verses six through the end here. In this remarkable description of how God brings his holiness to right where we are. As he references Moses and Aaron and Samuel, patriarchs of the faith. Notice what he does. Moses, verse number six, and Aaron among his priests and Samuel among them that call upon his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. He spake unto them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies. And the ordinance that he gave them. Thou answeredest them, O Lord our God. Thou wast a God that forgavest them. Though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. Exalt the Lord our God in worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. These, of course, these men, Moses, Aaron, Samuel, they're very eminent men, very revered historical men of the faith of Israel. They stood at various times. You can go into the books of history. You can go back into those early books of the Old Testament. They stood, as we could say, mediators between God and Israel. I think of Moses especially as the people of God have already failed the holy standard of God right as they've been given that standard, (laughs) On the slopes of Mount Sinai, one of the first times that Moses descends that wonderful mountain, he has just received the Ten Commandments. And what are the people doing? (laughs) Already violating pretty much all of them. (laughs) And Moses begs of God. He stands as a mediator between God and his chosen people, as it here indicates. He answered Moses' cry. But I think also too, I think what the psalmist is here doing is that through these mediators, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, God was working his holiness in his way precisely because each of them, as you might well know, have paths that are quite unholy. Think about Moses, the one who led God's people all throughout those wilderness wanderings and he himself is never able to enter the promised land. Which I think is just to say that even the best that Israel had to offer could not live up to the standard of God's holiness. And so what does he do? What does he do with that? Verse number eight, thou answerest them, O Lord our God, thou wast a God that forgavest them. Though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. He answered these cries uh, for mercy and pardon from his people while also punishing their wrongdoing. That's essentially what the psalmist is referring to. Yes, you forgive them. Yes, you clear their name eternally. But there are still ways in which you punish them for their iniquities. Which I think this, then this psalm gives us just such a wonderful picture of this holy mercy and we could call it righteous grace which fills our songs as he says there because of that verse number nine exalt the lord our god in worship at his holy hill for the lord our god is holy And he's holy because he's forgiving, and he's forgiving in his holiness. The one and the other are not opposite, they don't run out of tandem with each other. God's forgiveness isn't leniency, he's not being excusing of unholiness, it's not a cheat code. It's not somehow a sneaky way God God got around his own system. Actually, an opposite of that, he kept everything perfectly. It is forgiveness, which is in absolute keeping with his holiness. And that's what makes it good news. It doesn't subvert the law in some sort of cheating way. It keeps it brilliantly for us by the perfections of his only begotten son. That's the brilliance of the gospel. It upholds this holy God and it allows for unholy people to be forgiven. What a master stroke of this God. This great and terrible King. Who, as Paul says, is the just and the justifier of all them who believe. That's how he does it. (laughs) He remains just while justifying those who should be condemned. And it's all in keeping with this holiness. Therefore, in every single way, we can praise this holy, holy God. We can praise him. Praise him unendingly, praise him forever, praise him remarkably as we note all the ways in which his holiness is being borne out in us through his spirit, by his word, by the people we are called to be around. And that's what gives us a tremendous sense of calling, does it not? That the kingdom God is establishing, he's establishing through us by his word. We are called to live lives of holiness, which again doesn't mean it's up to us. It means that it's up to our dependence on His Spirit working through us, knowing that the Lord reigns. And his kingdom is coming. His kingdom will be established. It's not something that might happen, it's not a hope so, it will. And he is king even now. He is our great and terrible father. He is good. He is holy. Let us pray.